0: This podcast is brought to you by GIA, the Gemological Institute of America, protecting consumers and supporting the global gem and jewelry trade since 1931 through research, education, and laboratory services.
1: Welcome to the Rappaport Diamond podcast. Now your host, Sonia Sultani.
0: Welcome to this new episode of the Rapaport Diamond podcast. Today, we're going to talk about one of the legends of our trade, Harry Winston. To discuss his legendary career, his risk-taking approach to gemstone cutting, his famous collectors, we have with us Sharon Novak. Sharon is a high jewelry expert. She's a curator of private collections, as well as working with big maisons. Sharon is going to share so many interesting stories about Harry Winston's its approach to celebrity, its approach to marketing, and its approach to big, big, big diamonds. I hope you enjoy. Welcome to the Wrap Up for Diamond Podcast, Sharon. I'm so delighted to have you today because in season two of the Jewelry Connoisseur Podcast, your episode was one of the top episodes ever listened to, and you discuss how to buy at auctions. So if people haven't listened to it yet, I would encourage you to go and listen to that one. And today we're going to talk about a brand that is always, always performing so well at auctions. Is Harry Winston, and Sharon will have all the big important details about it. Welcome, Sharon.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Sonia. I'm happy to see you and happy to be back with the podcast. And happy Valentine's Day, everyone. Happy Valentine's
0: Day. We're recording this episode on the 14th of February, obviously. So a book was released, a biography of Harry Winston was released last year by his son, Ronald Winston. And we're going to talk about the book a bit later. But first, we want to talk about the Harry Winston style. Always, as I said, auctions, people are buying it. The brand still exists, obviously, today. So Sharon, what makes a Harry
1: Winston jewel? I'm very happy, first of all, to talk about Harry Winston, because I think in modern times, it's easy to assume that we've always used certain techniques, but in fact, a great many can be attributed to breakthroughs specifically from Harry Winston. So the first thing I want to highlight is the notion of the diamonds or the gemstones as the shape of the jewel instead of the metal shaping the jewel. So if you think about Harry Winston and sort of we're starting in the mid-30s through the 40s and 50s, at that time, coming out of the Art Deco, you really have more of a metal shape and then you're inserting the stones into it. The biggest example being, of course, the mystery setting of VCA. In contrast, what Harry Winston did was to say, let's let go of the metal completely. I want you to see as little metal as possible. And their innovation was to focus on very, very thin handmade wire settings that would virtually disappear, where the frame or the shape is really created by the jewel. And what I would encourage you, if you're listening at home, is take a look at any jewel you have in front of you and ask yourself what's creating the shape. Now, it's of course the case that we see lots of examples now where it's the gemstone, but I just wanna highlight that really comes from Harry Winston. The second thing I want to highlight is the 3D layering of the stones. When you look at a Winston jewel, you have stones on one plane, then another, then another to add a visual interest. That is a Harry Winston innovation and specifically the cluster setting where you have this combination of the pairs and marquees and the round. They are specifically choosing what layer where to give you the right visual impact of the piece. The next would be the famous wreath design. Now the, the story goes that he saw a wreath with snow on it on his door. I don't know if that's true or not, but this wonderful wreath of diamonds continues to be a classic Harry Winston design, incredibly beautiful. And then the flexibility. So along with the wireframe and the very, very minimal metal, you also have the incredible flexibility. So Winston himself would describe a bracelet as being able to be crumpled like a sweater. So when you look at a Winston piece, you see incredible articulation. Again, we might see that today with other houses, but very much a Winston innovation, and I think a very important one. Last, and we're gonna talk lots about this, is the quality, historic value, and size of the center stones. Winston is the pioneer of the collection and promotion of historic stones. And we'll talk a lot about that. But that obviously would be a key when you're looking at a Winston piece.
0: And why do you think people are still so attracted to this? Because as you say, he was a pioneer, he was a visionary. He pushed the boundaries. But after that, some other people followed, not always equaling him. So what do you think is so enduring about this style and why are people still searching for this style? And you know, we have a lot of dealers that are listening to us, estate dealers and current diamond dealers who love diamonds.
1: What do you think, Sharon? Without question, because it's absolutely timeless. I challenge anyone, if you look at a Winston piece, tell me what year it was made. I promise you from 1940 to the present, you will not be able to. They're absolutely enduring because they are timeless. They're also just beautiful. And I think in a time when we talk a lot about edgy or art jewelry or pushing boundaries, for me personally, as you know, I love pretty. And they are just beautiful. Beautiful will always be timeless.
0: Absolutely. For people who are following you, Sharon, on social media, you are an amazing storyteller. And you know everything about the big collectors and the big collections. Who are the big Harry Winston collectors you'd like to highlight today? There are so many of them. We we could spend a few hours. Who would you pick as the
1: really emblematic collectors? There are so many. We could spend the entire talk on the collectors. But to highlight from the top, Elizabeth Taylor, Jackie Onassis, Duchess of Windsor, King Farouk are the ones that I really want to highlight. So let's start from the beginning with 1935. Let's put it in context with the absolute peak of the Depression. And Harry Winston buys the 726-carat Yonker diamond. To take that kind of financial risk, he was the pioneer. It was unheard of. After one year of study, it's cleaved into 13 pieces, and Yonker one is purchased by King Farouk. Now, King Farouk, unfortunately, is deposed very shortly after. I think it's 51, 52. The stone isn't seen again until it shows up on Queen Ratna of Nepal, disappears again. And then in 1977, it's sold in Hong Kong. So we don't actually know where that stone is. But the same King Farouk also purchased the Star of the East Diamond, which is a very famous story because he had it on memo right at the time that he was deposed. And when he escaped to exile, he told Harry Winston that he did not have it. And then he found out later that, in fact, not only did he still have the Star of the East, but it was in a safety deposit box in Geneva. They had a very famous lawsuit. Harry Winston bought it back and it was sold again in 1985. Let's also look at Elizabeth Taylor, of course. Two of the most famous of her diamonds ever are Harry Winston stones. We have the Taylor Burton and we also have the Krupp diamond. So the Taylor Burton starts as a 240.8 carat rough in 1966 in South Africa. Winston cuts it into a 69.42 carat pair, sells it to the sister of Walter Annenberg. But it's very famously auctioned in 1969 at Parc Bernay. And Richard Burton, while desperate to purchase it, is outbid by Cartier. He is so upset that he ends up overpaying within 24 hours to Cartier, and it goes to Elizabeth Taylor. Upon her passing, it was sold in 1979, and in the same year went to Robert Mowat, who continues to own it. The Krupp diamond is a purchase in 1969 from the estate of Vera Krupp. It was stolen in 1959, recovered in New Jersey, and reset by Harry Winston in the original band. That one is extremely special. It's a type 2A Asher. And in 1993, in the season four finale of The Simpsons, Elizabeth Taylor insisted that she was animated as a cartoon wearing her Krupp diamond on her ring finger, and you can see that online to this day. Can you get more iconic (laughs) than being in the Simpsons? If you make it to the Simpsons, that's it. You're done, you hit big. So she has 15 pieces over time of Harry Winston, and as was very common, because these are collectors, it's a very personal relationship, they would trade in, buy out. She had the McLean diamond, one of the most famous in the world, but also in 1953 had a great disaster. Winston had purchased a pair of anklets from the Maharani of Baroda with very beautiful emerald drops that he made into a necklace. The Duchess of Windsor was wearing it at a ball. Everyone was proclaiming how beautiful it was, except when she got to the Maharani of Baroda, who said very cattily, those are beautiful, they were beautiful around my ankles as well. Safe to say the Duchess of Windsor never wore it again, turned it back to Harry Winston, and in a move that I find quite funny, because she didn't want any of her friends to see it, he promised and did sell it to someone in America. <laughs> <laughs> so if we want to do one more famous one, of course, we have the Lesotho diamond. It was cleaved on camera in 1968, one of Winston's big innovations. And the Lesotho three went to none other than Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis as an engagement gift from Aristotle. So it remains one of the great famous pieces from her collection. Was auctioned in 1996 by Sotheby's as part of her collection. An absolutely spectacular 40.42 carat marquise. This
0: is a fascinating spotlight already, Sharon. But what I found really, really interesting, and I think the people who are listening to us is that. Harry Winston always dared to recut the diamonds, always dared to be taking risk, as you said, you know, whether it was to buy a crazy collection like the French crown jewels and to borrow money from different sources. But that's one thing. That's the financial risk that most dealers know about. But there's the actual risk when you have a stone, a historic stone. So what was so daring and special about the man himself that you would like to share with us? And I think that might be inspiring as well for. The young generation of dealers who are listening to us, or they will or some of them who have known Harry Winston
1: will reminisce with us. So, first of all, legend is the right word. There's never been anyone before or since like Harry Winston. I'm gonna talk about his initiative and financial risk taking, his pioneering marketing approach, and most importantly, his gift, his eye. So today, of course, we can do 3D scanning of stones, right? We can figure out where they should be cleaved, how they should be cut to maximize the stone. But let's go back again to the Yonker in 1935. They were just cutting a small window and trying to guess. So if you think about the risk at the height of the depression to say my eye is good enough that I believe there are flawless gems in this stone, there's no scanning. He studied it for a year. And I will say, Angela Hedges, who's the longtime archivist of Harry Winston, and I had a great conversation before this podcast. Thank you, Angela. And she said there's hundreds of drawings that he generated to study this stone. So his gift for rough, and the ability to believe in himself is unparalleled. The second is the initiative financially. Let's start from the very, very beginning, because the beginning of his business, I find mind boggling. He did not have a dime to his name, and he saw the Stoddard collection in nineteen twenty-five, and he offered them one point two million if they would wait for six months because he believed he could sell the entire thing in that time, and he did, and they agreed. Think about what that means. The commission from that collection started his entire business, but he believed so much in his ability that with nothing to his name, he made this happen. It's incredible. Absolutely incredible. Then I would say in terms of the pioneering marketing approach today, it's very common. We always see celebrities wearing pieces, etc. But Harry Winston was the very, very first. So from 1949 to 1953, he has his court of jewels. He's going around the country showing historic gems. No one had ever done anything like this before. Not only is he making it available to the public, but I don't know how well known it is. It's also the root of his philanthropy. He's donating to women's organizations and hospitals everywhere that the gemstones are seen and continued to do so throughout his life. He, of course, started the beginning of the gemstone collection of the Smithsonian with the donation of the Hope Diamond. Let's think about that for a minute. All the other donations are Winston clients influenced by Winston to donate. So the famous Napoleon Diamond Necklace that Marjorie Merriweather Post donated, she purchased it from Winston. And she also donated it at the suggestion of Winston. So his philanthropy and marketing are tied together. So not only is it pathbreaking, but when you think of Jeweler to the Stars, you know, you've got Ingrid Bergman wearing Winston in 1946 in notorious. You have Anne Bancroft in the graduate, the famous betting scene she is wearing Harry Winston. So take a look at that again. But he also is the very, very first to loan for the Oscars in 1944. So what did he understand that other people didn't see? It's that we like to dream through aspirational people. If you see the piece worn, you want it yourself. And I can tell you, I have a perfect example of that right now in the series on FX called Feud, Capote versus the Swans. Their Dora has sold out of pieces that have been featured on the characters because they really wore them. The series that only been released two weeks ago? Yeah, they've sold out. Isn't that amazing? But it's the same concept as Winston. I'm gonna let you see these pieces on someone aspirational and you will want them. But the credit goes to Winston. So we have, of course, at the very, very top, cannot leave out the focus on historic gems. So from the start to the finish, at one time or another, Winston owned one third of all of the famous diamonds known in the world today. Think about that. And you know he didn't know when they were going to sell, if they were going to sell. He just loved them and preserved them. And last, I want to talk about what you mentioned at the start, Sonia, the risk taking and cutting. So until Winston, and really to this day, it is exceptionally difficult to have the discipline to say, I'm going to give up on carrot weight in order to maximize the quality of the stone. Winston did it again and again and again. And the reduction in some of these stones is massive to achieve, say, a D flawless. right? What are we talking about? You have rust that you could sell for a very high price. Let's say it's 124 carats. Winston's willing to go down to 44 carats if we go from, let's say, you know, a few flaws to nothing. And that is spectacular and significant. And that's just a few of the many things that made him incredibly special. This podcast is brought to you by GIA. Consumer trust is vital to the global gem and jewelry industry from mine to market. Through research, education, instrument development, and independent gem grading and identification, GIA is dedicated to protecting consumers, ensuring their trust in gems and jewelry, and helping the industry thrive. Visit GIA.edu for more information.
0: He has an impressive story, it's the American really, the big American story from right to riches. His son, Ronald, his uh, eldest son, is covering in the biography. I know you read it. I read it. Most people who love jewelry have read it <laughs> since it was
1: released last autumn. Tell me, Sharon, what did you think of the book? I loved it. I think that it's a perspective of the son to the father. You know, a lot of the jewelry industry, as many of the readers know very well, are family businesses. And this is a quite unique peek into what is it like to be next generation in a pioneering family business. I think fascinating. Now, specific to the stones, there's a little bit of repetition. I would probably go with Kerry Winston, the ultimate jeweler, if you want a specific focus on just stones. But for me, the Ronald Winston book is the story of the son, the family, and that perspective. And I think that's a very, very valuable contribution. I really enjoyed it. I did too. And I really encourage
0: people to read it if they want to learn more about Harry Winston and, and how he built his legend as well. Um and also the network, because you know we talk Harry Winston, Harry Winston, but there were a lot of people involved in selling in Geneva, in selling to the um to the Emirates, to so selling to other places. And I think what I love the most about the book. Is how Ronald went to places Harry Winston wouldn't go he went to Angola he went to the mines he went to South Africa Harry Winston didn't go to these places he went to the Riviera and he went to the nice places but his son did them he went to the bottom of the pipeline uh, so to speak and um, and went to the mines and brings this perspective as well what is the business and how they wanted to be vertically integrated which they did from the mine to retail is there one piece by Harry Winston that you would love to own? Maybe
1: you own it already, but (laughs) don't. So I'm going to answer first a point you made at the outset of this question, and then I'll come back to what I'd like to own. So you made the comment, there were many people involved, and I want to spend a minute on many people involved. And the first, you've picked a pet peeve of mine, which is, I want to clarify who did what. So what you see in a lot of auction catalogs, and I want to point out for the readers, you probably know this well, but just in case, the auction houses are moving very quickly when they write catalog notes. They do their very best, but mistakes happen. And the problem is because it's not an academic field, if something inaccurate is printed, it often just gets repeated over and over again. So one of the names that is repeated sometimes is Jacques Timet of Geneva. And I would like to clarify something. Jacques Timet was a manufacturing manager for Winston starting in 1955 in Geneva. At no point in time did he ever design anything at all. So anyone who says that Timet designed something is mistaken, unfortunately. The second point is that remember that in the 50s and 60s, we're talking about basically, as Angela Hedges would say, the wild, wild west. So when a product was distributed in Europe, and in this case for Winston, it would go through Geneva, it would have the maker's mark of Time put on top of it, even if Time had nothing to do with the manufacturing whatsoever. So if you've ever looked at a Winston piece at auction and you say, I keep seeing Time, Time, and people just repeat manufactured by, that is also very, very unlikely. So Winston was the first to pioneer a major workshop on 47th Street in New York. It was just down the street from him. He was very proud of it. If you think about it logically, why would he ever put his most significant pieces in manufacture far away from his view? He did not, is the answer. So when you see a Winston piece that's stamped Time, the only thing it tells you is that it was distributed through Geneva. And if it says Time attributed to Harry Winston, That means most likely that it was sold somewhere where the Winston name would not have been a good idea. But Timmé did not operate separate from Winston. Before 1955, there is some evidence that he produced some housewares, but he's not manufacturing jewels and with certainty not designing them. So I really wanna emphasize when you look at catalogs, please do the fact checking yourself first. Don't assume they're accurate because it's very easy for a small slip-up and no knock on the houses. They're rushing. There's a lot of material to cover. It can happen. Just double check for yourself before repeating anything, because you might be surprised by what you find. Now, on the design for the people involved, thank you for saying this, because you reminded me of something that I would hate to have left out, which is one of the pioneering moves of Harry Winston was to hire A.B. Shindy from India. So in the 50s, Everybody is rushing to India to buy the gemstones of the Maharajas. He was not alone in this. But where he is singular is that he recognized the design genius of a man called Avi Shinde, who was at the time working for a very renowned Indian jeweler, and his work was exceptional. And in 1963, he brings him to join the staff. And he worked very closely with Maurice Galli. I will say I also talked with Maurice's daughter Mimi, and I want to thank her as well for contributions to my understanding of the house. But why is that significant? Shinde is regarded as one of the greatest jewelry designers of all time. So the crumpled sweater flexibility, this draping effect in the gemstones would not have been possible without Shinde. And Winston not only recognized it, but brought him in-house. So when you think about the contributions to the Winston design and the Winston manufacturing, I would say, let's emphasize the workshop in New York, Shinde, Maurice Galle, and the support and understanding that Winston had in design. I think it's exceptional. Okay, what would I choose to own? <laughs> Do you want to guess of the historic stones? which one I would pick? I
0: know you. you wouldn't go for
1: the hope. It's too obvious. Correct. The Marion toilet? No, it is the Krupp Diamond. Of course. That's the stone. I I understand. Put it in a Simpsons cartoon because you never take it off. Now, interestingly, there is no evidence that that's one that Harry Winston cut. He purchased and he set, but we don't believe that he cut it as an Asher because that also would not have been one of the Winston classic cuts. But that's the one I would take hands down. I love it. Burton was right. They usually got it right, the the (laughs) Taylor-Burton. What a collection. May I also say that what Winston understood and what Taylor and Burton, well, really it's Richard Burton understood, is that from the beginning of time, gemstones have been a form of currency. And so while we do applaud Winston's risk-taking, I think he was more of a visionary in that respect, that he understood no matter what happens in the world, this Mm -hmm. is money. And this is timeless and I can always survive if I own a significant stone. And what Burton was doing was exactly the same. If we're going to have something beautiful on you, let it also work for you and take care of you, which is what he did.
0: That's great. And this beautiful lesson for everyone and reinforces how important diamond jewelry is, which is all about this podcast. So <laughs> exactly. Not a bad one
1: for Valentine's Day. Keep it in mind.
0: <laughs> I was about to say, put the bar of the Taylor Burton purchases is, is putting a bit of pressure on people for Valentine's Day. couldn't agree more. Thank you so much, Sharon, for bringing up this important thing about ca- auction catalogs. And, you know, it's not to name or accuse anyone because things are, as you said, very quick turnaround, but very important to notice. So for the collectors now who want to collect Harry Winston pieces, what should they look for which years and what specific signs should they have in mind when they go to estate dealers or auctions
1: I'm glad you asked that Sonia so I would personally probably go for 1963 to 1978 so that you can have both Harry Winston himself alive so you know he supervised the piece and the work of Evie Shinde So to look for the two. Now, many times, Shinde will be mentioned specifically. But if not, you look for the key Winston hallmarks. You want that draping effect, the incredible flexibility. You want the 3D layering of the gemstones. Obviously, in a perfect world, you want the largest, most historically significant and cleanest central gemstone or stones you can find. So that combination, I would say, is the ticket for a perfect Winston investment. It's been such a pleasure having you on this podcast. I've learned so much. I'm sure our
0: listeners will as well. And as I said, I would recommend everyone to read the book, Harry Winston, The Biography by his son, Ronald, and to follow Sharon on an Instagram account,
1: which is? Jewelry Athenaeum. Apologies for the name. It's jewelry spelled American, all one word with Athena, E-U-M. It means jewelry library yeah and it's a wonderful resource for anyone who wants to learn about
0: jewelry sharon writes fantastic captions as a wide wide range of input from different places she visits and you always, always learn something. So I would really encourage everyone to follow Sharon and learn from her as you listened to the past 30 minutes on this
1: podcast. Thank you for your kind words, Sonia. It's always my pleasure to talk with you and to learn from you. And I would say, in addition to the Ronald Winston book, I would add the Harry Winston, The Ultimate Jeweler book. It is an incredible resource. It's very helpful. It's part of my daily library.
0: Thank you so much, Sharon.
1: Thank
0: you so much, Sonia. This podcast is brought to you by GIA, the Gemological Institute of America, protecting consumers and supporting the global gem and jewelry trade since 1931 through research, education, and laboratory services. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Rapaport Diamond Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to get future episodes. For more discussion, news, and analysis about the diamond industry, you can visit rapaport.com, follow Rapaport Group on Instagram, and follow Rapaport on Facebook. Twitter and LinkedIn. We also invite you to watch our weekly market comment videos on our YouTube channel.